Welcome to the DICE podcast, celebrating diversity and inclusion in the workplace with your host, Mina. So pleased to welcome Nick Jennings, who is a DNI advocate and marketing consultant, who's actually all the way from LA, but is in the UK at the moment, so we're not too bad on time zone differences. So the podcast today is very much about intersectionality. What is intersectionality and why it's important in the workplace? So before we start, I would like to welcome Nick Jennings. Nick, good morning and welcome. Mina, thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, congratulations as well on this podcast. And once again, just a privilege to be here with your, well, for your inaugural. Thank you so much. So no pressure, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure at all. Um, so Nick, obviously we've um, chatted quite a few times over the past um, sort of few weeks and um, we've gone on really well and you're such an interesting person. So I'd really love you to tell the audience just a little bit about you and what makes up the wonderful Nick Jennings. Oh, wow. You're, you're so kind. You put me on the spot now. I mean, you know, I, again, for you, I have so much love. We we have connected over the last few months, really, and, and it really, I think, started when the, the BLM movement uh, kind of reignited, right? And, and that's really, I was in Los Angeles at the time, and I remember us doing a panel together, and I remember it being a really dynamic conversation, and, and thereafter, you and I, I connected, and I, we really connected on, on this topic of, of D&I. And I think that was a, for me, a, a really powerful moment because, you know, it, it kind of forced me to look more closely at myself. And I guess answering your question, I, you know, I, I'm originally from South Africa. So, you know, I was born and raised during the apartheid era, uh, multiracial at the time, well, still multiracial. And, uh, you know, my, my father, a uh, white Irish man from, uh, from Manchester and my my mother, a, a multiracial South African. So I think growing up during the apartheid era, you know, came with a, a number of challenges um, and, and questions and confusion around identity and race. And in addition to that, you know, being a gay man uh, was, again, another level of, of kind of complexity. And, and, and what I'd faced as a kid was, you know, a fair level of bullying, I'd say. And I, you know, I, I again, I, my childhood was was kind of very much, you know, I guess plagued by by these feelings that I mentioned earlier. So I, I, I really looked at storytelling. I became really interested in storytelling and and decided to, you know, pursue journalism. And uh, I think it was a means of of understanding. I think it was when I look back now and I look back at you know my life. I mean, I'm I'm 33 now and I look back at you know, everything that's happened, I can see these kind of themes, right? When you kind of take a step back and just look at your path and you look at kind of how it's how it's unfolded, I think that was a, for me, pursuing journalism was, was almost a way of, of understanding the world and kind of understanding myself. And working in, in TV news then for, you know, a couple of years, about four years and acquired a BA in journalism, Prior to that, uh, again, also a, a really powerful experience, uh, you know, working for a, a major a news corporation in South Africa, uh, leading the primetime news show. So really had an opportunity to to get very close to the stories that were, were shaping South Africa at the time and the conversations, you know, in the country and, and globally. 
I mean, I guess our as as news news people really, you know, the job is really about kind of um, assimilating information, right, and and sharing that with 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 the country in a way that's unbiased. And long story short, you know, I I moved to to London. Uh, thereafter, I, you know, pursued marketing and I wanted to kind of, you know, have more experience in, in kind of strategic communications. And ever since then, I've been working in, you know, I worked in London and lived in London for about seven years and then moved to Los Angeles and started working in technology for about the last five years. So that's where I'm at right now. And, and I think coming back a full circle moment to the, you know, the DNI conversation where you and I connected you know, it's I'm fairly new to DNI just in terms of, you know, how I'm exploring it a lot, you know, with a lot more kind of insight right now and a lot more focus. And it's 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 become such an important part of my life. And you know, you were a catalyst for that. And I again I just want to thank you for that and thank you again for, you know, giving me this time for hearing me out and letting me tell my story. That's just amazing, Nick. And your 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 background is just so interesting. And I'm sure you've had a lot of challenges growing up during apartheid in South Africa, being of mixed race, and as you say, being um, bullied because of um, your your racial background and your how you identify as a gay person. It must have had some real challenges. So, uh, with regard to intersectionality, what do you think that actually means? What does that actually mean to you? Yeah, it's a it's such a fascinating topic. And when I was first asked to speak on it, which was again, I come back to this time when we met, it was such a obviously a momentous occasion for me. But, uh, you know, I was asked to speak on intersectionality and, and I actually had to go in and look it up. Right. I actually had to go and find out what it really meant. And it means it, it actually if you trace the history of it, it it's it's really fascinating because it was coined by a, a black feminist uh, scholar back in 1989 called, her name is Kimberley Williams Crenshaw, and she's still very active right now in, in social justice. She's a law professor both at UCLA and Columbia, and she has a TED Talk out as well. And she was inspired to coin the term um, in light of a case that she'd come across, which was, I think, in 1976, I believe it was, uh, a woman called, her name was Emma de Graffenried. And uh, she, essentially, she had sued uh, automaker GM. And her claim was that she was not hired due to discrimination. And unfortunately, her case was was dismissed. Uh, and the judge had said, well, the automaker GM, you know, hired black men and white women. However, it was apparent that their labor intensive roles had been reserved for black males and the more administrative roles for white women. So what uh, Emma had found herself was 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 really in the middle. Right? She was she was caught in an intersection, um, an unfavorable intersection because the company was not hiring, the company did not see the value in hiring black women. Black men, sure, uh, for hard labor. White women, sure, to be in the office doing administrative work. But Emma was essentially correctly being discriminated against based on her intersection. And that was being a black person, firstly, and secondly, being a female. So for me, what that means is, you know, I've had... uh, for me personally, I've I've really had to look at 
myself and, and where I come from. And I, I always look to history. I always look to the background because I think that really, you know, as human beings, we are essentially, we are products of our experiences and, and our backgrounds. And, you know, my life is a, I guess, looking at from a from an ethnic you know ethnicity looking at it from that perspective you know obviously my dad coming from a, a white irish background and you know again being raised english really and then you know my mother on the my mother is really multiracial so you know she her, her her grandparents for example were black and indonesian and dutch so it really is a from an ethnic perspective exceptionally diverse and then culturally as well also i'm also multinational so i'm irish um i have all these nationalities right republic of ireland english england and south africa so culturally there's a lot of clash there as well uh, and then in addition to that, uh, I also look at privilege, for example. So privilege, you know, um, to some extent, people may think that, you know, I'm Caucasian. So to some extent, that is a privilege. I've also been privileged to go to university. On the other hand, you know, I've also endured the the, the, the challenges that, you know, my mother as a person of color uh, during the apartheid era, you know, the, really the regime was designed to make people of color, anybody of color, uh, feel really inferior and growing up with that sense of inferiority um, manifests in different ways. You know, when people feel like they're not worth anything, they sometimes engage in, in really destructive behavior. So as children, we unfortunately grew up with, with, with you know, in an environment that, you know, I don't think, you know, children should necessarily grow up in. And I see that as a as as you know an underprivileged really, and then finally you know we look at the you know sexual orientation being a gay person. So I think what that meant for me was you know I intersected at so many points. You know if you look at the kind of societal constructs, and I guess growing up with a, a kind of you know identity crisis, if you will. And uh, what I decided, what that led me on a path was, you know, trying to be different things, you know, so trying to be heterosexual or at least appear heterosexual or, you know, in the company of, of Caucasian people, you know, have to appear Caucasian or in the company of people of color, wanting to connect with people of color and wanting to be accepted as a person of color. So it really led to this identity crisis for me. And then, you know, again, probably towards my late 20s, and, and still ongoing now, actually becoming more comfortable with just being a person, you know, of intersectionality, right? So just being a person of, of from many places, of many parts. And, and that's really how it manifests in my life. But I think, you know, when it comes to, to just a feeling of identity, I feel like that's what a lot of folks struggle with and I think also what happens with, with, with people who intersect is also those levels of discrimination right like we spoke earlier about the example uh, of Emma this woman back in, in, in 1976 who had sued DM you know when you see those layers of of uh, you know let's say kind of minority um, kind of layers that someone faces in terms of being a black person or dis and, and disabled and uh, 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 maybe an LGBTQ plus, you know, in addition to that, what you see is sometimes um, kind of a multiplication uh, of of discrimination. And I think that's kind of what, you know, we, we want to like really 
overcome that. And I think we also really want to put a light on intersectionality on a, as a topic for a number of reasons, because I do believe it's a vehicle for uh, some, some phenomenal, uh, it, can, it can really bring about incredible change if we think about it conceptually and, and realize what it really is. No, that's absolutely right. And that's quite interesting, actually, to to understand how the term inter intersectionality actually came about from a, a black woman who, of course, faced um, um, experiences in the workplace, which kind of brings us on to why you think that um, intersectionality should be at the forefront of the workplace. You know, what, why is it important? Absolutely. Fantastic question, uh, Amina. I think it's a... Look, I, I think understanding it is important and, and where it comes from, the history of it, and, and it has very strong links to feminism. However, in a modern context, you know, what we are seeing in workplaces right now is we're seeing these, you know, a lot of companies, 90% of companies saying we support DNI. DNI is important to us, right? So we're seeing these well polished kind of PR, uh, beautifully PR'd. Uh, uh, content pieces and and you know CEOs coming out and, and supporting DNI, which is obviously fantastic, and we're seeing that increasingly, and these very high visibility campaigns, which I think is is part of the conversation and definitely important. But what we're finding is that those companies only four percent of them are thinking about disability, for example, right? So this is problematic and. What, I, what, what I've observed is that we are, I think the issue also comes about as, as, the, as, as, as minorities, let's say, right, or protected characteristics, as, you've, as you actually shared with me that term this week, and thank you for that. But, um, you know, I, I actually think it's a, it's a matter of all of us working together and for each other as minorities, as a community, because what we're seeing is you know, certain minorities. And again, if we look at the LGBTQ plus community, there's definitely a lot of emphasis there and uh, quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of support. Uh, so I think it's a matter of also, when we talk about intersectionality, looking at it as a concept and looking at the wide spectrum of minorities, right? Looking at disabled people and giving, or people with disabilities and looking at how uh, how we can be more inclusive of people with disabilities. Because, you know, we've all come so far, I think, as well, in terms of the LGBTQ plus community. If you look at the successes there, uh, it's been incredible. And, and that has really come down to, you know, it's, it's been a fight, right? It's been a fight over, you know, many, many, many decades. So I think as a community, we also need to really support each other and stand up for each other and shout for each other. And I think intersectionality helps us look at the whole spectrum. So we are really conscious. And I think as a term, as a concept, you know, we think people with disabilities, we think ageism, we think, uh, you know, BAME, we think LGBTQ+, and that I think helps us be more inclusive. That's really, really great um, overview, actually. And, you know, just going back to your own background, 
um, being of mixed race and also um, it's kind of mixed nationality, that's actually quite interesting. That's actually quite a positive thing because it makes you more cultured, which means you can bring so much more to an organization. I mean, I come from a mixed background myself. Um, my dad is half Indian, half English. So he was born here in England. And then um, my grandmother or my grandparents, my grandmother who was English, uh, went to India, lived there for 40 years. So her experiences, she although she identified as a white Christian woman she's very much Indian in her ways you know in terms of the dress that she wore you know her outfit her outlook her her thinking um the food she ate and she cooked she was very much an, an Indian person um inside in a way but that just brought so much richness to her personality and of course she was loved by everybody so it's the same with you Nick I feel that um we have such a warm feeling with each other because you have such an interesting colorful background and colorful I mean very positive in terms of your multiracial and you know your multi um national that actually gives you so much um experience and thought and richness in your outlook in life and your experience which you can only share with other people whether it's in the workplace or or personally which kind of brings us on to you know engagement and how do you think that employers can actually better engage with people who intersect you know what can they do what say are the three tips that you would possibly um say an employer should do to actually make an organization more inclusive of intersectional people that's a fantastic question Mina and 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 thank you as well for you know sharing your experience I think it's 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 I think that's what makes you a really warm person as well is also the, the this kind of intersection of cultures right I guess you as well grew up with a with influences from different cultures from different countries and 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 of course you know ethnicities so I think that it it does. I mean, you mentioned that it you know it tends to give people a a bit of a you know I would use the word edge I guess for lack of a better word. It you know it, it tends to give people some sort of I guess definition and and you know different kind of levels. So yeah, I think when it comes to engaging with uh with people who intersect, I think once again looking at it you know conceptually because you just mentioned you shared you know your your experience of intersectionality and and I'm sharing mine and we all actually regardless of our you know our ethnicity um you know I think intersectionality as well we we kind of look at it from the perspective of okay it needs to apply to minorities and certainly that's where it started and and certainly where that that still the conversation still needs to you know there need to that element needs to be there that minorities very much are impacted by intersectionality but i think conceptually if we look at it that you know everybody has a everybody has a story and everybody has experiences and a background that make them unique and i think as businesses looking at it from that perspective as well i think is valuable i think really you know from an authentic point of view and this comes back to as well what we spoke about earlier around how companies approach diversity and inclusion, you know, I, I think that they, I think we can do a lot more around these conversations being authentic. And I think additionally, and, and probably most importantly, these conversations also need to be essentially shaped um, by employees, 
right? And they need to be shaped by the people that are really, again, you know, if we talk about intersectionality, if we talk about minorities, I think that these conversations also, these people need to have a voice and these people need to have a seat at the table um, so that they can actually, you know, talk about what they think good looks like and how they want to shape, uh, whether it be policy around DNI, for example, or, you know, uh, visibility for, around intersectionality. And, and how they really want to approach that and how they can see value in that as well for the business. Because, I mean, ultimately, when we talk about DNI, you know, a, a big part of the conversation is around how businesses can also benefit, right? We look at things like profit, we look at things like productivity, and we see that more diverse teams, you know, equal better profits. And, you know, that's something that I guess from a business perspective, is always going to be a part of it, uh, and we need to acknowledge that. So I think it, it it really depends. Just to sum up, I think it really depends on the you know on the I guess on the business itself, uh, where the business wants to go, what the values are in that business, and again how intersectionality does align with that. But it's really up to the I think minorities to really be leading in those conversations because I think that. You know, we've been doing things a certain way for, for, for a very long time. And, you know, essentially, you know, the way that we're doing things has really been shaped by, by white men, by wealthy uh, white men. So I think we also need to, we really need to, and I talk about this a lot, is, is provide the platform for minorities to also take the lead, to shape the conversation. So I, I, would, I would take that approach, I would say. Excellent points there. And I think that's really important is to allow the employees of ethnic minorities or of any minority to actually shape the conversation, to give them that platform, give them an, a level playing field. We're not saying you need to give, you know, one um, set of people or over another in terms of advantage. Absolutely not. What we're saying, we're saying open up the conversation and open up the, the organization to allow for everybody to input and to have their voice and to be able to uh, voice their opinions and their concerns or their even any positive experiences because it's not all only about negative experiences is it it's also right. about you know uh, positivity and and um you know what positive things that um a company is doing for example um and i i go back again to your um, your your own history and how you said you were bullied growing up during apartheid being multiracial and also being gay and of course, mental health is such an, such a prominent topic at the moment. And of course, um, COVID has kind of brought that out a lot more to the forefront. Everybody's working on at home. We're in isolation. The world's gone a little bit crazy. So in terms of mental health um, being a prominent topic, when we talk about intersectionality, why, why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, look, that's uh, another topic that I'm I'm, I'm so passionate about and thank you again for for bringing that into the conversation I, I did want to touch on one thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier and you know when you and I have a conversation sure. it can go absolutely anywhere which I, I love yes. that I love that about about our conversations and it just goes on forever yes so, <laughs> so, <Love it. laughs> so you know <laughs> oh gosh don't get me laughing don't start 
So, you know, what I, what I, you mentioned something earlier and it was about, you know, kind of, I guess one, one group having kind of favoritism and, or, you know, one, one, one getting ahead and one not. And for one person to have, one person must not. And I think we're so, I want to just highlight this. I think, you know, the society, we are so terrified about talking and just calling things what they are. I think it's, it's, it's important to be tactful. I think it's important to be compassionate and to be careful with the language that we use. However, we also need to be very clear that the society we live in today has been designed, has historically and today still ad provides an advantage for white males, right? And all that you need to do is look at the statistics. Okay, look at um, black and or BAME people versus white people, even in the UK, in the US, in terms of arrests, in terms of imprisonment, in terms of home ownership, in term, terms of employability, in terms of employment and education. And you see that the for minorities, the, the cards are stacked against them. Okay, and, and this is just this is just fact. So I think that we also, and again, you know, we talk about white fragility a lot, how, you know, white folks, um, you know, we talk about white privilege and, and there's a lot of fear there. And I understand that. And I think, you know, we, we touched on apartheid earlier and, you know, what had happened in, 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 in South Africa was essentially a shift as well, right? We had kind of a white minority in South Africa dominating the country and not just dominating, but segregating and oppressing people of color and in a very intelligent, very well architected way. So that all changed when, you know, after apartheid had ended and the black government, or at least the ANC liberation movement had taken over. And what had happened was the pendulum had swung the other way. And then we saw that, you know, white people were then at a disadvantage in South Africa. Now, it's a bit of an anecdote, and I don't believe personally that it needs to be like that. I don't, I don't believe that one group needs to lose and for another to win. I, I don't see it like that. I believe that all of us can be equal. I believe all of us can have advantages. So I think it's important as well, you know, not to, to kind of be, like I say, tactful and honest, but let's look at the history. Right. And let's acknowledge that, you know, things do need to change and, you know, minorities do need to be given platforms and they do need to be given, a, you know, not just given opportunities, but we need to look at the past and look at the effect that that's had on our present and, and acknowledge that that needs to change and it needs to change now. Right. We don't have time to waste. You know, we're talking about children. We're talking about the generations of tomorrow that are going to lead the world. We need to see that change immediately. So I, I know that was a bit of a, a bit of a sidestep, but from your question, you spoke about mental health, and you know, I want to I want to address that. I, I feel like it's again statistics show that you know people, especially LGBTQ plus people, uh, BAME LGBTQ plus people tend to, given that culmination of discrimination, it tend to, you know, it, it buckle under the pressure. And, you know, you do find um, high levels of suicide. And this is something that's very well documented. So absolutely, I, I think mental health is 
a absolutely essential, particularly when we're talking about uh, intersectionality, and particularly when you're talking about those folks that are, you know, having that cumulative effect where, you know, maybe you're black, maybe you have a disability, maybe you're, you know, you're, you're LGBTQ plus, and, you know, you're really getting that, that experience of, you know, I, I guess discrimination earlier we spoke about disabilities and how people with disabilities are not really represented in, in at all really or well enough in DNI. So in terms of mental health, I think it's when we talk about focusing on it, I think it's about programs in the workplace um, that uh, you know are anonymized, that are outside of the workplace where people have access to those services. I think that's essential. I know that you know in the past you kind of had a you know a psychologist or maybe you have some as a company you have somebody on site uh, but maybe that person on site that psychologist is you know is friends with accounting you know or friends with the, with the chief exec and this person is still employed by the business so this individual also you know their focus is also making sure that people can stay in work and they can stay productive so i think absolutely having policy around mental health and having that externally and anonymized is important and definitely having awareness and having those difficult conversations, right? Like we need to talk to talk about things. When we talk about things, we give them life, we bring them to life, we illuminate them and they become less scary. Absolutely right. And it's quite interesting, actually, what you, what you have just said about having a psychologist on site, because uh, at the moment, what's becoming very much the forefront is mental health first aiders, as they call them here in the UK, is having somebody on site, because we have um, physical first aiders, if you, you, you hurt yourself or you're unwell, um, but we don't really look at the mental health. And just, you know, being in the events industry for 20 five years I think now when I first came into the event industry in my first job in events it was sink or swim you there was no training as such there wasn't even a degree actually in those days for, for event management um, so it was there was no um, regard for one's health and safety in terms of mentally you were on site for long periods of time you're away from home some people very young maybe first job it was, it was, when I look back, I think actually it was quite, um, you know, would I say tough? I would say a, a tough experience because I was always worried that if I didn't perform to, to the standard that they, they wanted, that, you know, I would be disciplined. And there were people in the workplace who were actually quite nasty. And I actually remember, you know, it were, that people actually being quite nasty to me, but for no reason. And um, I, I remember a situation, I was in New York. It was the first international assignment I've, I've, I've actually ever been on. And there wasn't any regard for me being, you know, the, the first assignment abroad or um, me be quite young or inexperienced. It was very much about sink, swim, and that's it. And if you didn't do anything according to their sort of standards or what they wanted, then you'd be disciplined. But there wouldn't be any support to say, well, this is the reason why we want you to this or this is the support we'll give you. And in the events industry, we have very long hours as well. And we're away from home. We're oh, no. away from family. And sometimes yeah. you're on your own. I remember traveling the world on exhibitions and, um, you know, going back and forth to, to a venue from your from your hotel, which could be miles away or could be the wrong part of town. Um, and that was actually quite scary for me um, 
being kind of female on my own I remember in Lyon I was on the wrong side of the river so I was kind of like too scared to go out on my own in the evenings to get anything to eat so it's small things like that where employers really need to understand and recognize that there are people who are vulnerable because not only of how they identify in terms of being male or female could be their age could be their inexperience could be so many things and all, we, we should actually understand that mentally it can be quite difficult i mean i guess I've, I've had to really learn and it's really toughened me up but there are people i know in the industry who actually couldn't progress or couldn't um carry on uh, because mentally it was too hard for them um, and, and it was, it was, you know, it's such a important topic that we don't actually recognize. So having a, a psychologist on site or a mental first aider is a really, really good point. Um, so that, Nick, actually yeah. sort of brings us to the end of our recording today. But I'd really like to ask you um, a very personal question, because I always like to understand, you know, more about who I'm actually talking to and more about the person. So, you know, during lockdown, I've been reading lots of business books. I'm not really a novel reader. I'm more of a, um, a chick flick romance film kind of watcher. <laughs> so in terms of your preference, um, what do you like watching films or books or reading books? <laughs> and what is your favorite book or your favorite film? You know, it's uh, it's it's a combination of things, and I, I you know, I, I'm glad that you brought up the pandemic as well because it really has been a a difficult time for everybody, right? And and I think that's really the difference with this. You know, when it's come to disasters in the past, you know, we've we've you know, you've seen countries and, you know, they're having a really difficult time and it's, it's happening over there. It's happening to somebody else. But what's really happened is globally, everybody is really going through a very tough time right now. And I think people are looking at ways to kind of maintain sanity. And I mean, I've done a number of things. I, I mean, I like all the things that you've mentioned. You know, I love books. Uh, I love watching great films. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate really great music. But what I have found to be really helpful for me is a focus on, on wellness, overall wellness. And, you know, that, that, that means like a number of things. You know, it means for me starting my morning with a meditation with lime water. I have kind of lukewarm lime water in the morning and I start my meditation. And just thereafter, I pop my headphones in and I listen to two podcasts, one of from Deepak Chopra, uh, another one uh, called, I think, Everyday Positivity. And then the another one I listen to is a new one from Brené Brown. And I think it's called, um, I think it's called Dare to Lead. So I would listen to these. I'd start with the first two, listen to those back to back, and I would go running and I'd work out, you know, in the park. And then, you know, in 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 addition to that, I'm I'm making sure that I'm eating well. I'm making sure I'm getting enough rest. I'm, you know, nourishing my mind. That's such a, such a great thing, actually, to say, you know, your, your meditation, your podcast. And now let me just add, this is us podcast onto your, your list. <laughs> absolutely. <of> absolutely. <laughs> I to listen to in the morning. So. Absolutely. Without a doubt. 
and we all like to have a glass of wine. I know I, I certainly like to have a, a glass of wine or, or a gin or something in the evening. But anyway, Nick, I, I really appreciate your time this morning. As always, we could just chat for ages. So thank you so much. Um, really appreciate all your, your time. Loved you talking about your past, your family, your, your background, and how that actually... Uh, resonates within the workplace you gave some really great examples there and I think what stuck with me the most is the psychology the psychologist on side or the mental first aider so Nick thank you so much and I will speak to you again soon thank you so much Nina Nick Jennings um, DNI advocate and marketing consultant Contact DICE by emailing welcome at diversityinconferencesandevents.co.uk for all your diversity and inclusion needs. Why not visit our website today or follow us on social media? 